Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Get clear, get free, and get going. This is the mantra of today's guest. His name is Lloyd Reeb. Lloyd is a public speaker. He's an author. He's a real estate developer, and he's the primary spokesperson for the Halftime Institute. Lloyd is going to, on today's show, remind us of the importance of not just doing what is valuable, but of doing what is actually priceless. He's going to discuss the difference between success and life-giving significance. He's going to challenge us to relentlessly forgive, and he's going to encourage us, get ready for it, to get clear, to get free, and to get going. My friends, today on this show, I want you right now to buckle up, open wide your minds and your hearts, Grab your journals, prepare to use them. You will want to take notes as we bring on our newest friend, his name, Lloyd Reeb. Lloyd, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, man, that, that long brag during the introduction is all true, not only about you, but the impact that you're having. For those that may not yet know about halftime, they may not yet know about the work you do or the life you've lived, tell us a bit about what you're doing today. Well, today I am in South Carolina, beautiful sunny day. I'm helping a very talented business leader that has the impact of generations of generosity. His family owned farms and then mills here in the 1800s, and he has taken that and and innovatively created new companies. My role is to help him gain clarity about his focus and calling in the next season, now that he's in his mid-50s, and really figure out his core contribution for the next 30 years. How can his second half be even more impactful and fun and joyful uh, than the first half was? Well, what you are doing for this leader, you uh, have agreed to do for all of our listeners today, including myself, and I'm thrilled to go along for the ride. And yet it doesn't begin in South Carolina, and it does not begin with this leader of mills. Your story takes you a little bit farther north up to Philadelphia. Is that your epicenter? Is that your place of birth? Yeah. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my dad ran a national valuation consulting firm 
One of the interesting things that shaped my thinking early on was dad uh, valued things like the Howard Hughes estate uh, representing the IRS when he passed away or all the assets for the city of New York in the 70s when they were issuing a bond. And we would sit at the dinner table and um, he would talk about rich and meaningful things like how do you value complex assets? And so I learned about value from a childhood and I became a real estate developer and uh, and for some reason God chose to bless our business. So it gave me some freedom early in life. And But my mind went back to value. What is mm-hmm. really going to last? And it's funny because value always has a time component to it. And I remember dad teaching us, if you had something really um, fun and exciting, but you could only use it for a short period of time, what is the value versus something that you could have for a long, long period of time? And so I've been interested and shaped by that, interested in investing my life in something that's going to outlast me. Mm. Well, it started early. My understanding is you are in the back of a car on your way to Jersey Shore. You're about 13, 14 years old, and mom and dad are having a conversation up front, as parents sometimes do. And they're talking about how they will never have the opportunity, neither will their kids, of owning assets, owning property on the beach. Prices are too high, and they're rising. Uh, t- take me and our listeners forward from that conversation. Yeah, you, you can visualize the um, 70s and you know, kids in the back seat, four brothers in the back seat, not a whole lot of seatbelts going around. <laughs> kind of hot. And, you know, we were actually coming back from the beach and to Philadelphia and dad was saying to mom that, you know, price of, of land down at the shore was going up. And for some reason, instead of pushing and shoving with my brothers, just the way my mind is wired, I just started thinking to myself, well, why would you wait for prices to go up? I mean, why not do something now? And I just got into a panic. And so the next day I, I took dad aside and I said, hey, dad, you know, I've been thinking about what I heard you say to mom yesterday. And is there any chance you would, um, you know, take me back down to the shore and see if I can buy piece of land. I've saved up this much money. And and if you would lend me some more money, I'd be glad to pay you interest. And I was going on. And finally, dad just said, Lloyd, 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 would you just be normal? Right. Like, just go play football. <laughs> um, but, you know, he took me back down. He helped me find a few acres of land in the, in the Pine Barrens, just outside Atlantic City. And he lent me money. And thankfully, he charged me interest. And uh, so, so tell me, from, tell me why you would say that. What's well, what's the lesson know, in there for you and for us? Well, I think the worst thing that we can do for our kids is over-endow them and rob them of the joy of learning the rigor of not only capitalism, but how you build wealth and how you create value in society. And so by doing that, he, he was saying to me, you know, this is a serious endeavor. This is not just a wishful thinking. If you're going to try to take advantage of rising prices, then you're going to have to pay the price. And it means you're going to have to get out and mow lawns and shovel driveways and and make a interest payment every month. And it was, it was, it was a huge, he was passing the values down before he passes the money down. And if you and I really want to create a a thriving family and build a lasting legacy, we're going to have to not only learn and live the values in our own life, but pass them down somehow, not only in his teaching of how you value assets and what value is in, in the economy, but by 
the practical side, you know, getting in the car and driving down to the shore with this, this little guy and running around looking at properties and then saying, you know, seriously, you really want to do this? And then lending me money and charging interest, all just great wisdom. As a dad, you know, now our kids are in their 30s and to think about, okay, what, what are the things I need to continue to do to pass the values of generosity and honesty and, and hard work down before uh, passing money down to the next generation? So you are learning these values as a kid. You become a real estate tycoon at the age of 14. You continue to develop that. Uh, and then eventually you move into the retirement home business. There's a, a conversation that you had with a gentleman named Patrick Kelly. I don't think you tell the story very frequently, but if you remember Patrick Kelly, to talk about who he was and what he taught you. I left Philadelphia, went to McGill University in Montreal, which got a wonderful education and, and then started developing real estate near Ottawa. And Patrick Kelly was one of the you know big developers in Canada, and he was a big part of building the first indoor mall back in the 60s, I guess it was, the Eaton Center in Toronto. And um, I was going to see him at his house to try to convince him to move into one of our retirement facilities. And so you can visualize this 29-year-old guy and kind of nervous walking up the big stairs to his front door and knocking on his door. And he welcomed me in. The house was quiet. And um, and then he took me on a tour of the house. And he took me from room to room and showed me some of the many buildings that he was uh, part of building. And as you can imagine, I was inspired. I, we went through our conversation and he agreed to move into our building. And I was excited about that. And walking out the front door, I remember thinking, if I stay focused and just I'm all in with real estate, I I could be like him. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I got to the bottom of the stairs, it dawned on me, if I'm not careful, I'm going to end up like him. Mm. And the, the thing that twigged in my mind is all those pictures had no people in them. And his house was silent and empty. And his, you know, the, the people around him in his family and even his wife were not that enthralled with him. Who he had become was not the person I really wanted to be. And his investment had been in buildings. And it dawned on me that as much as I love real estate, as much as real estate can be a great platform for impact and contribution in our society. I didn't want to invest my entire life in something that would be torn down in a hundred years. And it started me thinking about beyond success to significance, you know, really what, what is going to matter at the end of the day? You know, I didn't ask to be born in the family I was, I didn't ask to be born in America. I just, I won the lucky gene pool. Mm -hmm. And then I was given a great education. You know, I probably wouldn't have gotten into McGill University with my grades or, or a academic prowess <laughs> unless my uncle had taught in the med school there, wrote a great recommendation for me. So, you know, it's like the phrase, to whom much is given, much is required. And I just thought, what am I going to do differently so I don't end up at 79 like Patrick Kelly? Hmm. So take me forward from that inflection point. You, you, you see the guy that back in the day you looked up to, and then you are awakened to this idea that if I'm not careful, I'm going to become just like this guy. So what do you do with that information, Lloyd? Well, honestly, I had no idea. Um, I didn't have role models of people who had been successful that uh, reinvented themselves at midlife. 
Now, that doesn't mean there weren't people out there, but I didn't know them. There was one gentleman I knew who had been a senior executive in the White Motor Company, I think it was called at the time, it was a trucking, a truck manufacturing company. And, and, uh, and I'd heard his story of um, wanting to make a difference. And he, he had been very talented CFO, I think, in that company. But I didn't know many role models. So I thought, you know, part of my problem is that I'm living in a silo. I don't really know what the needs are in the world. I, I'm heads down creating wealth every day and then going home to my farm and three little kids and my wife and and just having fun. And so I started to explore what what is happening in the world. And one of the things I did was uh, I went to Hong Kong the Philippines, uh, Malaysia, and Singapore. Mm -hmm. So Hong Kong was just touring, you know, downtown, fun, typical kind of high-end tourist stuff. In Malaysia, the friend I was traveling with knew uh, uh, somebody there that was serving kids in poor part of town. It's called a squatter's village. We spent a week or five days in the squatter's village just playing basketball with kids and helping them. And um, and then we went to a resort in Malaysia, Island Malaysia, overlooking the South China Sea. And I remember sitting on that beach saying, you know, this is not the life I want. I, I had more fun with those kids playing basketball last week than sitting here, you know, sipping some kind of martini or something on the beach. Nothing wrong with a, a nice vacation, but I just realized that just doing that all the time was not what I was aiming for. And so that exposure of what was happening around the world, both uh, at a high end and a capitalism end and also at the poorest end of the world, coming back and trying to figure out, okay, so what am I going to do about that? One of the guys in our retirement home had been mentoring people in prison for uh, a decade or Mm -hmm. so. And so I went with him. And went to prison one day, and and I, I was so amazed at the the despair in in prison, and the how dark it was, and how he brought light and hope and encouragement. And so on the way home, I said to him, you know, Mr. Kerr, what do you think I could do? I'm just a real estate developer, and he said, Well, look, just take Thursday afternoons off, come down to the prison, and mentor some of these young guys. I started doing that, and. It turned out I was terrible at it. I mean, you, you've I, it said was, that before. What do, you, what do you mean by that? How can you be well, terrible visiting and loving and encouraging prisoners? <laughs> well, it wasn't that way. I mean, that would have been good, right? But the sad and embarrassing piece is I uh, kind of waltzed in there <laughs> and didn't know their story, had never been exposed to their world much. My strengths are strategy. I'm a thought leader by nature. That's the strengths I was given. So I would dive into strategy with them and say, okay, how'd you get into this mess? And what could you do differently? Mm-hmm. And what do you need to learn while you're here? And how are you going to use this time? And and they didn't even, their whole <laughs> worldview was so different. They had no right. way of visualizing what it would look like. So I think in some ways it was a bad day in prison when I showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and the only thing good is that they felt better when I left finally, you know. And But, you know, it was good because I started – well, first of all, it was humbling. That, that's right. a great thing. If you've been blessed with success, to find yourself in a place where you get your butt kicked a bit and you realize, I am no good at this, that that was humbling. I remember going home one day and thinking, who do I think I am? You know, I waltz in here. I got all these smart answers. 
uh, maybe I should just listen, you know? And it dawned on me, my mom was not a prostitute. Dad never punched me in the face. Mm -hmm. No one shot at me on the way to school. Who am I to show up with all these smart answers? And what if I just show up and listen and encourage them? And that was my first foray into trying to um, serve or give back or something. And it was good. It was a bit of a detox. It wasn't a good place to stay, but it was a good place to start. Talk about your introduction to halftime. Where did you first hear about the concept or read about the concept? And then secondly, if you don't mind, tell us what halftime even means. I started to feel like there's got to be more to life than just building more retirement homes and accumulating more stuff and junk and toys and homes or whatever. So I started exploring like we just talked about. In that exploration, I bumped into someone who who was friends with Bob Buford. And he said, well, you know, what you're trying to figure out is what Bob Buford has been writing about. He wrote a book called Halftime. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and he said the byline is changing your game plan from success to significance. And I wasn't really interested in not being successful, but I was interested in infusing significance into my success or really blending it, you know, coming up with something that's um, more lasting than just more more stuff. And so he introduced me and I went to see Bob in Dallas. And Bob was 22 years older than me. So I was maybe 35 at the time and he was probably 57. I'm 57 now. He listened to my story and he said, well, you know what's interesting about what you're doing is that you and I bracket this movement of people wanting to renew themselves at midlife. He said, you're on the younger side, you're less affluent. I'm on the older side of the movement and I have a lot of money that I really want to give away in my lifetime. But he said, there's a growing number of people that realize that they have 30 bonus years. And I said, well, what do you mean 30 bonus years? And he said, well, you know, the average life expectancy in America a hundred years ago, I said, no. He said, well, 47 or 48. And so our previous generations would come to this season that we call midlife. And statistically, they were getting to the end of their life. And because they were manual workers and not necessarily knowledge workers, their ability to continue to contribute was tied to their energy level. And so it really dropped in these years. You might have been on a farm or a factory or you uh, were at home with kids and you might have had multiple kids and you had aches and pains that you and I wouldn't put up with. Today, when you get to that season, you're probably healthier and you've certainly got longevity. And he was being mentored at the time by Peter Drucker, who if you studied business, he was one of the foremost writers about business management in that era. Peter Drucker said to Bob, describing what Bob was was observing, he said, people today have two lives, life one and life two, and they're overprepared for life one and they're underprepared for life two. And there's no university for the second half of life. Mm. So he, he asked me to come to a talk at like young president's organization or something like that. And I said, well, I'm not really a talker, you know, I'm a real estate guy. And he said, well, you don't need to be a talker. Just share your story about what's going through your mind and heart, just like you and I are doing just now, John. So that was 22 years ago. And I think I've done probably 80, 80 talks a year ever (laughs) since then. Well, you became a speaker. I I heard uh, several of the talks that you've given, including your TED Talk. Share with us a few of the kind of surprising facts about the second half. And and before you uh, take a big sip of coffee and then get ready to answer, 
I'm just going to remind our listeners, whether you have great assets that you're ready to deploy in the marketplace of life in the second half, or you feel as if you have little assets, whether that's internal or external to deploy, I think your answer, Lloyd, will speak to all of us, regardless of really, regardless of what age we are at currently, and also what we feel like we have to give to the marketplace. One surprise I would say is that this journey of renewal at midlife is more akin to archaeology than architecture. Hmm. And one one of the mistakes that people often make is they will say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm at a place where the kids are gone off to college, and I've got some more time. Uh, I'd like to make a difference in my community. What boards could I be on?" So they get on the hospital board, or Boys and Girls Club, or the YMCA, or you know, Young Life, or something. They start by looking at the solutions, or they start by looking at the opportunities. And the place to start looking is inside, and even looking in the past. And that's why it's more akin to archaeology than architecture. If you start by just looking at the things you could do, uh, but you don't look at who am I, what are my strengths, what are my passions, what is my purpose or mission, then uh, you can become sloppy busy. And you might have heard people who, you know, let's say somebody retires at 55 or 7 or something, and they'll say, I'm busier now than I was before. I don't know how I had time to work. Usually that's an indicator that they're sloppy busy. And sloppy busy means that you are doing good things, but you're not sure what is the one thing you were put on this planet to do. And as a result, the calendar is full, but there's this nagging sense that there's not the same focus and leverage that you had in your business or your career before. One big surprise is to resist the temptation to start working on the solution and take the time to think through what are my core strengths? You know, when was I at my best? What was the most painful experience of my life and how did it shape me? Hmm. And you know, in you can see in your journey that what you went through as a child has been has provided the passion for you to be able to give back into people's lives for decades. That is so true that very often the pain of our past provides a passion for the future. So I'm, I'm just curious, and I, I don't think you're suggesting this, but I'll, I'll just call it out for our listeners. Why wait? Why wait till we're ready to get the country club membership or retire from that darn job after 35 years? Why wait to discern who we are, what our gifts are, and how we should deploy them into the marketplace and into our life and into our families and communities out there then, you know, in the future tense, rather than pouring into this right now? No, that's a good question. I think one one reason is because it's not baked into our our education system, and it's not baked into our family conversations. If you think about most of our conversations in families, and at least in America, it's around education, sports, travel, and the material things around us. But how often do we sit at the dinner table? Well, first of all, how often do we sit at the dinner table and talk together? You know, where do you sit around and talk about your purpose on this planet or what your strengths are or your love languages or your even your Myers-Briggs or who are you? How, how were you created? Even if we just, you know, as a family, we, we all did the strength finder back when the kids were in their early teens 
And it's a Gallup organization's assessment that you can take online or you can buy the book Strength Finder 2.0. We have a big uh, blackboard in the kitchen. So I put everybody's strengths up on the blackboard without any of their names. Mm. And then we just played a game guessing of who was who, right? And so once we got all the names right, then Linda and I shared stories about how we saw those strengths wow, playing cool. out in those kids' lives. And I'll tell you, there were tears. And at one point I said to Linda, can I talk to you in the dining room? And she said, yeah. And so I said, it's not working. <laughs> and she said to me, what do you mean? I said, well, they're crying. And she said, are you crazy? They're crying because they feel fully heard, mm. fully understood for the first time, maybe. And I thought, wow, that's got to be the norm in our families. In order for a kid to think about their purpose and calling early, instead of just being traipsed around to 10 different universities and try to pick based on the architecture of the campus, you know, think about who you are and then the work you've been given. Not, not the other way around. So I think part of it is it's not something that we as a boomer generation have taken seriously. And as a result, we haven't passed it down. But I keep telling our kids that halftime is a remedy, not a strategy. Wow. I would never say to Carter, hey, guess what? Get your PhD in environmental engineering and then go work for a big uh, law firm and keep your head down and bill 50 hours a week. And then at 49, look up after you've ruined your health and all the relationships around you and you got a big pile of cash and freak out and say, what's my life all about? And then go quit your job and join a nonprofit. I mean, that that is not a strategy. You know? No, but it is it, many of our goals. You know, as we yeah. kind of in unintentionally go through life, climbing the ladder, realizing at the end it's leaning against the wrong wall. So that's why I think halftime is a great remedy. If if any of our listeners find themselves in their 40s or 50s and they, they sense, wow, I mean, I checked all the boxes, but there's still something missing. I have this smoldering discontent in my heart and everybody around me thinks I have everything I need and want, but there's something missing then what you need is you need process to take the pieces apart and solve them separately. You need some peers around. That is amazing when you're in a safe, confidential setting with a few peers to talk your confusion out loud. You need some stories and case studies of what other people are doing with their second half just to, to break up your thinking and, and get past the failure of the imagination. I wish that every 20-something had a way to be able to gain a lot more clarity about their calling or purpose in life and before just launching into a, mm -hmm. a career based on whatever opportunity comes their way. But the fact is that the people who are really looking for help are people who find themselves in a squeeze later in life and kids are starting to leave home and they have some freedom that's showing up or Maybe they're two or three years away from early retirement and they can see light at the end of the tunnel. That's when very often people look up and say, okay, who can help me figure this out? Lord, when I'm uh, on this side of an interview, I'm always not only listening to what the individual says, what you share, but also what it means selfishly for me. And so one of my takeaways already has been, uh, I'm gonna take the Lloyd Reeb challenge, which is to sit down with my kids, I got four, my bride, and uh, make a list, each of us, of strengths that we see in one another, and then put those up on a board and celebrate stories of each child with their siblings hearing us brag on the others and themselves. Mm. I just think it's awesome, it's underrated, we're so busy, so we can't find time to do it. And I really can't think of anything I, I think is more important than making sure they recognize 
why we love them, what they're great at, and celebrating them in front of their peers. Mm. You, you you mentioned that word peer though, and uh, you you've had some phenomenal peers and mentors in your life. You also had one that sat you down once and invited you to make a list of everything that you felt was incredibly valuable in your life. And you made a nice long list. I'll let you talk about that in a moment. And then this individual sat you down and said, okay, now make a list of everything that you find to be priceless. So share with us what came up on those two lists and what the difference was. Well, it's funny because, you know, you you don't necessarily put things in those categories. And so when he said to me, um, you know, take out a blank sheet and write down the stuff you have that's valuable. I mean, that was fun because that's what my life had been focused on was acquiring things that were valuable. And so I just sketched them down so fast and it was a fun and quite joyful process. He watched me and then he said, okay, now on the other side of the sheet, what I want you to do is write down everything you have that's priceless. And the first thing it did, it was it just sucked the wind out of me because I thought, whoa, you know, your mind whirls to try to compare well, what is priceless versus what's just merely very, very valuable? Mm-hmm. So, gosh, I came down to, you know, on the one side, it was things like buildings and investments and cars and homes and silly things. I have a 46 Chevy pickup truck that I love. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the fact is it's got a value. It's not priceless. I put it down. So on the priceless list were things like my reputation, my health, my relationships, my faith, and It was a very short list. And then he just said, now, let's talk about what you're doing to protect them. And lo and behold, the valuable things were very well protected, but the priceless things were largely unprotected. And he didn't need to say anymore. It was just a no-brainer to me to look at that list. And I had written the list. So it was a huge indictment. It's such a simple a powerful question, right? And questions are way more helpful than smart answers. I would encourage any of our listeners to to take a blank sheet of paper and do those two lists and then just ask yourself, what am I doing to protect the priceless things in my life? I'd like you to brag for a little bit about the work that you do through the Halftime Institute. So for those of us, whether uh, we want to learn more about it in and of itself or just how we can elevate and leverage some of the processes to apply it in our own work and lives, talk about the Halftime Institute. Well, in, in 1997, Bob and I set out to create a university for the second half of life, a place where people who had been blessed with some measure of success could come and to begin to explore how they could make the second half of their life even more rich and fulfilling and impactful than the first half. And so we, uh, we started to, to discover what does it take to have a healthy midlife renewal and how can we create environments where people can do that? There are lots of different programs that you could take advantage of. You could do something virtual where you're on video with six or eight or maybe nine peers meeting every other week for an hour over a series of 10 or 12 times, or you could be part of a year-long program where you, you meet at different parts of the country with a one cohort of seven or eight people and then have a coaching conversation in between. But the big things are to help people with three things, get clear, get free, and get going. So if you think about that, just get clear, get free, and get going. The first part is to get clear about what you value, what you want at the end of the day, who you are, and what your purpose is. 
And one place to start with getting clear is to think about what you want at the end of the day. The Uh question might be, if my life turned out perfectly, what would the elements be? So imagine if you and I met 30 years from now, I'd be 87. And if you said to me, Lloyd, good to see you. How did it go? And if I stop and think about it, and then imagine if I looked you in the eye and I said, it went perfectly. Uh What would those things be that I had to scroll through in the back of my mind in order to draw that conclusion? Now, if I could get clear on those and write those down, those provide long-term metrics for my life. Those are, by definition, long-term metrics. You would never build a strategy for business that didn't have some clear metrics. And so often people are trying to build a strategy for life and they struggle with choices because they don't have clear metrics. And then we help you get free. And one of the things that stands in people's way is their lives are cluttered. And sometimes they're cluttered physically, like they have closets full and garages full. I mean, you've ever seen how many people can't even park in their garage? (laughs) And then their lives are filled with things that are good but not best. Right. And uh, I'm just looking at a sheet of paper I have in in, uh, front of me of all the boards that this person I'm with today is on. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine boards. Well, first of all, you can't even keep track of nine boards. And secondly, is a board roll your very best contribution? Very few people find that their best contribution is sitting in a board meeting. But there's so many other ways to contribute. So you got to get free before you can do anything. You know, if you get clear and you don't get free, you're nowhere. You got no margin, no ministry. So we help people create freedom. And I remember a song that touched me in this front. The tagline of the song was, you can't imagine the freedom you find from the things you leave behind. Mm -hmm. So we help people get free by creating time in their life, just even think, by creating some financial margin and emotional margin. You know, one of the constraints or capacity issues I face, John, is, is that I am introverted and yet my work every day is with people from morning till night. And so if I don't create cave time in order to recharge my emotional battery, I can't bring my best to you when we're together. Getting free is an important next step. And once you've gotten clear and you've gotten free, then you can get going. And by getting going, it's like, what context should I serve? What organizations? Is it the one I'm in right now? What role? How would I allocate my time? So often people think their time is just taken, but you invest your time. And so how do you want to invest your time? So I'll give you an example. I was um, coaching a guy that was a senior executive at Lowe's Home Improvement. When we worked on getting clear, his strengths are creative problem solving. Turns out he's passionate about kids that are dying or living without hope. 17,000 kids die every day in the world of preventable causes. That's his passion. So his mission or calling turned out to be to use my creative problem solving skills to help organizations that serve children who are dying or living without hope. So that was clear, right? He got clear. And then how do you get free? Well, you know, there's a lot of things he's doing that don't fit that. And so he started to, to whittle down some time start to whittle down their spending. So if he felt like he found an opportunity to make that difference, his lifestyle wouldn't be holding him back. And then in terms of getting going, we started to explore what organization. So I asked him, 
do you think you could make that contribution at Lowe's? He, he said to me, well, seriously, like how could I, in an executive role at Lowe's Home Improvement, how could I make an impact on kids' lives that are dying or living without hope? I don't know how many thousand employees Lowe's has uh, today, but at the time there were, there were a lot of employees that were working at minimum wage. And if you just run the numbers statistically, you could calculate how many single moms were sleeping in their car at night with their children that work at Lowe's during the day. But nobody in their management team had ever asked the question, what will we do for our homeless employees? So very often you can make your contribution right on the platform where you are. But it takes creativity and thought and reflection and, and exposure to other stories. Now, he didn't end up doing that. He became the chief innovation officer for World Vision, which serves poor children around the world. They have 49,000 staff, $2.9 billion budget, touch millions of kids' lives every year. And he told me, every day my feet hit the ground, I can use my skills to save another child's life. As you look back on your wild halves of life, both the first half and the second half, growing up in Philly, taking those trips down to the beach, going up to Montreal and, and all the journeys that have followed. What's the one takeaway that that uh, kind of ties it all together? What's one thing that you've learned along this wild ride of life? I would say it's intentionality. In every area of life, to just ask myself, how could I be a little more intentional? And I'll give you an example. When I asked someone at the Halftime Institute, if your life turned out perfectly, what would the elements be? Almost inevitably, one of the things they say is, I want my family to be thriving. And so I started writing that down. And then I started asking one supplemental question, tell me about your plan. And what do you think they say? <laughs> what plan? Yeah, that's right. They say, what plan? And I said, well, you just said to me that you want your family to be thriving. And I'm just asking you, what's your plan for that? It dawns on them and me that, wow, a little bit more intentional. I mean, I'm so intentional in my business. Why wouldn't I be intentional in my family? And so we help them build a vision for their family, family values that will undergird that vision. We help them think through each kid's personality. What's this kid's biggest risk this year? What's the kid's biggest opportunity? What can I do about it? We help them think through how, if you want a generous family, how do you include your kids in your generosity? And one of the best ways to break the cycle of entitlement and consumption in a family is generosity. Mm. It just breaks the backbone of that in a family. So I would say the biggest thing I see is that for some reason I was given uh, an extra little ladle of intentionality, and it's certainly not something I asked for. I, I feel like I was given it. And so my my purpose is to try to pass that on, help other leaders um, be more intentional in not only how they give their time away to serve others, but in in building a really world-class family. And very often when I ask people about their family at the age that I am in their 50s, they will say something like, well, my youngest graduates in May and then they're off the payroll. <laughs> and the underlying inference is that either my leadership role is gone or I have no idea what it is next. And so in a sense, you can easily abdicate your leadership in the family when kids leave home. But it's the time to lean in and bring your wisdom, not in a controlling way, but in a way that undergirds the next generations and passes leadership off to them. But where there's no vision, the people perish. 
So where there's no vision, the, the family just drifts, right? Yes. So that's what I would say is the big thing I've seen over these years is the value of intentionality. Well, you are living proof, exhibit A of it, a phenomenal teacher of it. And Lloyd Reed, we have seven questions that tie all of our intentional leaders together. And the very first one of the Live Inspired Seven is, what's the best book you've ever read? Well, the best book is the is the book that I've read is still relevant after two thousand years, and that's the Bible. I read it every day. Probably the the most powerful book, second to that, that I have read is a book by Gordon McDonald called "Ordering Your Private World." Hmm. It's about the fact that we have an outside world and an inside world, and you build a great life from the inside out, and so you have to order your inside world in order for your outside world to find order. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I would say curiosity. Mm. I think uh, curiosity is waning. You know, I just got back from a trip to Hong Kong and Taiwan and Poland and and St. Petersburg, Russia. And it's interesting. I, I found myself more interested in tranquility and Uh, comfort than exploring around the next corner in Mm. those communities. Very cool. And I think that applies to the majority of us who are uh, no longer uh, in diapers. So keep exploring, stay curious. If your home Mm. caught fire and all living things, people, pets are out and you had an opportunity to run back inside and grab one item that really mattered to you, what's the one item that you might grab? Yeah, I would grab what I call my book of days. I keep an artifact every day of someone's life I was able to touch or help. And there are all kinds of forms. Sometimes it's a voicemail that I transcribe. Sometimes it's a card or a note or a picture. And um, so if you can believe it, I try to keep 365 of those each year in a black spiral bound book. And so I have seven of those now. And I've said to Linda, if something happens, I'm not home and you're safe, grab these books on your (laughs) way out. (laughs) <laughs> well, man, if I, if I hadn't already come up with one takeaway already from you, you just gave me another awesome challenge. And I hope our listeners heard it too. Very few of us track life. We track miles for those of us in sales and we track calories for those of us on a diet and we track bank accounts for those of us moving toward retirement. But gosh, but very few of us are tracking relationships and certainly impact. I think that little book of life is a very cool thing to first do and secondly save. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, Lord, who would you want to be seated right next to? Uh, I would. I would love to um, to spend an hour with David McCullough. He wow. is uh, one of the most uh, well known historians today, but he he finds gaps in our knowledge of our country's history and brings them to life through his writing and speaking, in a way that changes our view of who we really are as a country. I'd like to grow up to be like him uh, someday. So sitting with him for an hour would be a wonderful gift. What's the best advice you've ever received? My mom taught me it's better to give than to get. Uh, that that plays back in 1961 when you're born. I think it plays true in 2019. Hmm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Uh, Mary Linda Walker. <laughs> Seriously, very best decision my life was marrying Linda 37 years ago, not just because she was cute, but that plus 
just the character. It's interesting. That's such a big part of life that who you pick as a 20 year old or in your 20s or 30s when you choose to get married. When you're 57, you look back, the things, the character attributes that really matter are not necessarily the things you think about as a 20 year old. Right. So Linda's relentless ability to forgive, for example, like the secret sauce in a great marriage of just simply forgiveness is amazingly powerful. Man, that is a cool trait. Relentless ability to forgive. That, that ought to be something we all strive toward. And I appreciate you sharing that and Linda modeling it. Our final question is this, Lloyd. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I would say 100x. Tell me about it. Well, I'd like to take what I've been given and invest it in others so it produces 100 times uh, that kind of blessing or impact in other people's lives. So I, I'm just trying to take what the little I've been given and leverage it. In, and you know, this is a vehicle to do that. You know, Your platform you've built is a vehicle where I can hopefully share some wisdom and 100 people could benefit from it. And um, so I, I feel like I'm a steward of a few hours, a few days of life and some talent and some money. So I would say 100x. Mm. Well, Lloyd Reeve, you during this time have reminded me and I'm sure our listeners of reminding ourselves not only what is valuable, but what is priceless. You reminded us about the difference between success and significance. I think you challenged us to be relentlessly forgiving And you certainly encourage us to get clear, get free, and get going. I want to thank you for your time today and the work you do generally. Thank you, John. I appreciate your story, your life, and and the contribution you're making with this platform. And so thanks for having me. We'll keep multiplying your gifts, my friends. That is Lloyd Reeb. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Stay free, get going, and live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast together as a Live Inspired community. And yes, that includes you. You are part of this community. Together, we can change the world. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.